This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming out. I see we added another table. That's a very good sign. Baruch Hashem. Hopefully as we continue to study the Megillah together, more and more people should come in and join in this incredible study, this worthy endeavor. Last week, as a quick recap, we discussed mostly, we spent most of the time just discussing the history of the Ma'am Loes, possibly, possibly the most significant work of Sephardic Torah ever produced. Now again, when I say Sephardic, I mean because it was produced primarily for the Sephardic Jews, hence it was written in Ladino. Um, of course, the, maybe the greatest work ever written by a Sephardi would have been, I mean, the Shulchan Aruch, written by Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Rambam, you know, who, know, who knows? But bottom line is, we discussed mostly the, the history of the Mamlois last week, and then we started the first Pasuk, but we did not even finish the first verse. I want to go back. And it was in the days of Achashverosh. Who Achashverosh? He was Achashverosh, Hamolech Mehodu Ve'adkush, who ruled from India to Ethiopia. Me'av Esrim... Shev... 727 kingdoms. 127 kingdoms. Now we were talking about the name Achashverosh. What does the name Achashverosh mean? So we said the Jews called him Achashverosh because the word chash means to have like a pain. Verosh is in the head. Achashverosh with this king who is constantly changing his perspectives back and forth. We got a headache just trying to figure out how do you work with this king, right? How do you work... I think some people, maybe in today's day and age, can relate to this concept. You get a headache trying to figure out what, 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 what do I got to do to be able to work with this government over here? You know what I'm saying? It's a little bit crazy. It's head scratching. It gives you a headache. That was the first explanation. The other one we said, or maybe we didn't say it last week, was Achiv Shel Rosh. He was considered the brother of the head, the head who destroyed Jerusalem. Nevuchadnezzar Hayud Sareha LaRosh. The verse says in. Uh, lamentations, the oppressors of the Jewish people were the heads, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and that was the other explanation, that he was like a brother of Nebuchadnezzar, he was so terrible. However, when they asked, when Achashverosh said, why do these Jews call me Achashverosh, they said to him a little bit of a different tune. They said, oh, the word Achash in Aramaic means leader, and the word Rosh in Hebrew means like a head of state, a head of leader. So it just means that you're the leader. Now, of course, Achashverosh clearly didn't have a Gemara cup. He didn't have a Gemara, a Talmudic head. Because if he did, he'd be like, wait, you're telling me you called me head, head? Because Aramaic, Achash is leader, and Rosh is leader in Hebrew? Like, it doesn't make sense. There must be an alternative explanation. That would be redundant. But, of course, he didn't have a Gemara cup, and he was just happy to hear the Jews were calling him the leader. So he was happy with that explanation. Okay. Why were the Jews put in the power of this terrible king? Because they were being Mechal Shabbos. The Sefer of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, describes how the Jewish people were not closing their stores on Friday evening. And Hashem gave them, gave Achashverosh more power than he deserved and allowed him to oppress the Jews according to their full measure. For this reason, he was given dominion from Hodu Adkush, from India to Ethiopia, which we're going to see there's two main opinions. Was India to Ethiopia the entire civilized world? These 127 kingdoms, was it the entire civilized world or not? Let's go with the first one, for example. Generally speaking, the further you are from a a, a land that you control, the less power you have over it. So if you'd have a massive empire stretching over 127 kingdoms, the ones of the far reaches, would, you would not have the same level of power over than the ones that are closer to you. And the Pasuk starts off, the verse starts off by telling you, no, he absolutely ruled over all 127 kingdoms. He had them all. Now, according to this other opinion, the 127 kingdoms did not represent the entirety of the world. Now, here in the Mamlois, it says that originally he had 252. I've also seen other opinions say that he had originally 254, which would be exactly double 127. But either way, according to both of those opinions, he lost tremendous amounts of his empire, almost half of his empire, or half of his empire. Why was this? He received this punishment for a few reasons. Number one, he denigrated God. In the book of Ezra, you can see Achashverosh referring to God 
as the God of Israel whose habitation is in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-uh. You got the wrong address for the Lord. Where does the Lord live? He doesn't live in Jerusalem. Where is God's address? All of them. God's address is all of them. He doesn't only inhabit Jerusalem. So when Ahasuerus described God as living in Jerusalem, he was cutting down God's space, so to speak. He was cutting down God's address. And as a result, his kingdom got cut in half. Another opinion is because he was punished for stopping the building of the temple. There was a promise made by his grandfather, Daryavesh, Darius, and his father, Cyrus, Koresh. And what happened was like this. When, here, here's how it goes down. So if you remember, according to the opinion we said before, Cyrus, Koresh, was the grandson, the illegitimate grandson of the king. Astyagis, who had a single daughter, Mandane, who became pregnant from one of the low courtiers, and the king was very angry, killed off the courtier, banished his daughter, and had his son thrown out. His son was raised in the wild by wild dogs, hence the name Korish, which means dog. And he became fierce and powerful and overtook his grandfather. Now, he ended up creating an alliance with this other powerful king of the time. So he was the king of the Medes, and there was the king of the Persians, Darius. Darius said, let's make an alliance. Let's marry. You'll marry my only daughter. Right? Darius had his only daughter marry Cyrus. And they became the Malchus Paras Umadai, Persia and Medea, because it was a combined kingdom. On the very first night of their marriage, while Cyrus is now married to the only daughter of Darius, in their, you know, uh, in, in their Yichud room, in their, when they finally have a moment alone after all the festivities, they decide, why should we be under the thumb of Balshatzar, Balthazar, the king of Babylonia? We're much more powerful. Why don't we just rebel against him and capture the city of Babylon? So indeed, <coughs> Cyrus, this great powerful warrior, leads his army against Babylon, but he could not take it. Balshatzar sent out a troop of a thousand of his top Jewish officers. The Babylonian kingdom at that time had many, many fierce Jewish soldiers, and a thousand of the top Jewish officers from Balshatzar's army defeated Cyrus, who then went with his Tail between his legs, no offense, but for the dog king, you got to say it like that, you got to use that meta- metaphor. He went with his tail between his legs back to his father in law, Darius, defeated. Balshatzar made a big celebration that night, which was also coinciding with his feeling that like the 70 years were over, and he made this big celebration where he got dressed up with the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and he brought in all the temple vessels, and it was that night which we described last time where the writing came down on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekal, Farsin, count, measured, measured, weighed, and divided, which Daniel explained to the king when he brought in his Jewish advisor, Daniel, meant that your kingdom, all your sins have been measured and weighed, and, and you're done. Your kingdom's going to be divided tonight. So Balshazar turns white with fear. He's drunk, but he, he collapses into a faint, and he gets up. And there's two opinions about how he died. Opinion number one is just that there was an old slave who heard the prophecy of, of Daniel, and he said, well, if, your king, if Balshazar's kingdom is going to be divided up tonight, and the armies of Cyrus and Darius, Kairesh and Daryavish are going to flock into the temple, into the palace tonight, they're going to chop us all up, right? They're going to, they're going to come in. In those, those days, I mean, they, these days war is pretty ugly too. But in those days, war was quite ugly. You came in, you killed off all the other, you know, the other, the other team. So he said, I, I, I need to curry favor for myself. So he himself, this old uh, slave from the palace, went and chopped off Balshatar's head and brought it out to Cyrus and Darius to save his own skin. And indeed... That worked out well for him. Everybody else, Cyrus and Darius, upon 
receiving receipt when the UPS package came. You have to sign for delivery with the head of, of Balshazar, Balthazar. They went sweeping into the palace and indeed did kill everybody else. That's opinion number one. Opinion number two is that Balshazar was so afraid when Daniel made this prediction that he was going to lose his kingdom that night. He said, nobody is allowed into the palace, no matter what. Put a bulletin out to every single soldier on the guard. Nobody is allowed out. To, sorry, nobody is allowed into the palace tonight. I don't care if you say you're the king, you're not allowed in. But he was drunk, and he went out one of the back doors to go to the restroom to relieve himself. And he comes back in, and there's a soldier there, an old slave, who was maybe uh, poor of sight or just whatever it was. And this guy comes back and he says, let me back in, I'm the king. And they said, no, 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 the king told us not to let anybody in tonight. Said, no, you let me in right now, I'm the king. And, and the king was killed on his own orders that anybody who tries to come in should be killed, even if he says he's the king. Either way, that was the night. That was the night of a thousand swords. That was the night of a thousand knives. In come the armies of... Darius and Cyrus, they sweep into the palace and they make an order to kill all the people in the palace. There's a young girl who is the daughter of Balshazar, the granddaughter, the great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Her name is Vashti. She's a 12-year-old girl and she wakes up to the sound of great commotion in the palace. And she starts running through the halls and there's soldiers lying dead and fighting everywhere and she goes running into the throne room and there is a man standing in regal battle armor she assumes this has to be her father and she goes running over to go hug and throw herself at the feet of her father she's scared and of course it's not her father it's Darius it's and he looks down and he sees this beautiful girl and he says you know what even though we're killing everybody We'll take this girl captive. She's of the royal bloodline. She's the last remaining royal bloodline from the great Babylonian empire. We'll give her to the grandson who will be born of this union of my son Cyrus and my, my son-in-law Cyrus and my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law, the, the princess. I don't know what her name was. So, indeed, Akashverosh is given Vashti to marry six years later. Vashti is captured when she's 12 years old. Six years later, Achashverosh marries her. And we'll see, he makes a big feast for her. When Daryavish finds out about how... So they finally, they come in, and they sweep in, and they got their victory, and now they're doing the debrief after this great military conquest. What exactly was going on? How did the defenses of the Babylonian Empire come down? We tried to attack them earlier, and we got repulsed, and now we just came in and swept in, and they learn about Belshazzar and his decadent party, where he was wearing the clothing of the high priest, and he was using the vessels from the temple, and that was the night that there was the writing on the wall, and he was destroyed. So Darius says, I don't want that happening to my fledgling empire. So Darius makes an oath that when I get back from this campaign of war, I'm going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. I don't want to mess with that Jewish God. Again, although many peoples hated the Jews, they had a very healthy dose of respect for the Jewish God who seems to just be able to wreak havoc on kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. So when Darius finally takes the battle, he says, when I get back home, I'm going to allow the Jews to rebuild. However, he gets back home, and eh, whatever one thing leads to the other, there was, a, there was a game of chess. He left the middle of the game of chess with, his, uh, with one of his court guys, and then there was some, some other things to take care of. There was logistics, whatever it was. He forgets about it until Zerubbabel, one of his Jewish advisors, comes and reminds him and says, uh, Darius, remember you... Remember you said that thing, yeah, about the Jews being able to rebuild the temple? Yeah, you, you said that. You didn't do it just yet. So I think it's time for you to do it. So what happens is now, Dariavish, Darius, gives over the kingdom to his son-in-law, Cyrus. And he instructs him that you should see to it that the temple will be rebuilt immediately. And, in, and indeed, Koresh, Cyrus orders that the temple should be rebuilt and its vessels should be returned. He even starts to pay for it. Interestingly, he orders that there should be, this, the, the, the Talmud tells us in Tractate Megillah, that he had a very peculiar build design he wanted for the temple. 
Beautiful stone on the outside, beautiful stone on the inside, wood, uh, sorry, beautiful stone on one side, beautiful stone on the other, but with a wood core. Why did he want a wood core? So that in case the Jews were problematic, he could burn it down. He wanted to, he wanted, he wanted to like, in case of problems, smash glass here. You know what I'm saying? So he, interestingly, he ordered it, even the way he ordered it was not appropriate. But he did pay the wages of the workers, he sent materials, and the temple started being rebuilt. However, after two years, his son, Achashverosh, succeeds him, and Achashverosh is going to order the halt of the building of the Beis HaMikdash. Why? For starters, you can find this in the book of Ezra, three people, Sanbalat, Tovia, and Shimshai, one of Haman's sons, Write the following letter to Achashverosh. And I'm going to read it to you verbatim. I mean, I don't have the dear king, sire, whatever it was, but here it goes. If the Jews are allowed to build, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, a great rebellion will take place. You know how impregnable the walls of Jerusalem were. Nebuchadnezzar could take the city only after a long siege, and when he took it, he had the walls torn down and the inhabitants driven into exile. Only then could his followers feel safe. You should not allow the Jews to rebuild the walls. If they do, they will rebel and refuse to pay taxes and tributes. Since we eat the king's bread, we love him very much and we do not want to see him suffer any losses. We therefore advise that permission to build the temple should be withdrawn. This letter was sent upon the advice of none other than, of course, Haman. This was presented to Achashverosh, and Achashverosh says, okay, Haman, who then was the one behind the halting of the building of the temple, ends up suffering that he ends up swinging from a timber that was 50 amos high, 50 cubits high. Where do you find timbers of such great length and quality? Well, that timber had been used in the Beis Hamikdash. Okay. In doing this, trying to prevent the building of the temple, Haman was emulating his ancestors. Haman is an Amalekite. The nation of Amalek was born, there was a a, a person named Amalek, the progenitor of the Amalekite people. Who was he? He was one of the sons of Eliphaz, the son of Esau, Esau, exactly. Now, they were very much opposed to the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash. When Yaakov, Jacob, our forefather, gave the blessings to his son, he said that Yaakov's descendants would gain permanent ownership over the Holy Land by building the Beis Hamikdash there. They did not want the Jews to have that ownership. This fight over the land of Israel is not a recent thing. It goes back to biblical times. The Pasuk says, and we say this in Shira, in, in Az Yashir, which means you shall bring them and you shall plant them on the mount of your inheritance, the sanctuary Hashem, which your hands have established. This was the purpose of the Jewish people going out of Egypt, was to come to the land of Israel and to build the sanctuary of Hashem. And therefore the Amalekites attacked the Jewish people as soon as they left Egypt because they did not want the Jews to go into the land of Israel and build a temple. So the Amalekites attacked Israel even when they were in the desert, a defenseless, fledgling nation that had nothing, wasn't bothering anybody, was in a piece of desert. Which, by the way, just reminds you, if you want to know why the anti-Semitism... It's got nothing to do with our wealth because they attack us when we're poor. It's got nothing to do with our poverty because they attack us when we're rich. It has nothing to do with because we want to live in the land of Israel because they attacked us for thousands of years when we were in exile. And it's got nothing to do with when we were in exile because when we try to go back to a little sliver of land in the world, they attack us for being there. They attack us for who we are, God's children, not because of all the other excuses or rationalizations given. That's why Hashem has it out for Amalek, as the verse says, Hashem tells the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy, and it will be when Hashem gives you respite from all the other enemies in the land that Hashem has given you, you shall blot out you shall surely blot out 
the memory of the land of Egypt, uh, the, of the people of Amalek, lo tishkach, you shall not forget. And what's the next verse? V'hayaki <coughs> And it will be when you come into the land that Hashem is giving you. The idea, the land of Israel is very deeply connected to our defeating of Amalek. Haman was a descendant of Amalek, so when we saw the Jewish people rebuilding the, the temple, he did everything he could to dissuade Achishverosh. And since... Cyrus had made an edict saying whoever tries to stop the building of the temple should swing from a gallows. Ironically, at the end, Haman swings from a gallows, he and his children. Now, Vashti also was very against the building of the temple. She said, my family, this is our legacy. Our legacy is that we were the ones who destroyed the temple. And you're marrying me now. I'm your queen and you want to allow the rebuilding of the temple? So basically, based on the words of Vashti and the words of Haman, who drafted the letter that was brought to him by Sanballat and Tovia and Shimshai, one of his children, they, Achashverosh, makes an edict and halts the building of the temple. Hashem ends up punishing Achashverosh and Vashti and Haman for this. Haman swings from a timber. Vashti is killed in the first chapter of the book. And Achashverosh, of course, loses half of his kingdom. He had originally ruled over 254 or 252 kingdoms. and the end, he only rules over 127 kingdoms. And again, this is only one opinion. The other opinion is that the 127 kingdoms was the entirety of the civilized world. Now, why 127? The Medrash tells us that God knew that one day... Esther would end up taking control of the 127 kingdoms that her husband had rule over, and 127 was the amount of years that Esther's great 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 grandmother had lived piously and righteously, and therefore her great great granddaughter was awarded 127 kingdoms. Okay, so now until now we've gone with opinion number one. Opinion number one being that Achashverosh was a true royal of the royal bloodline of being the the son of Cyrus, the grandson of Darius, the great-grandson of Astyagis, a long line of kings in his lineage. But then there is another opinion brought down in the Talmud. And that one says that Achashverosh was actually just a regular commoner. And he's stumbled upon this great treasure, we'll call it Nebuchadnezzar's treasure, and hopefully we'll get a little bit later to how that treasure came to be. He stumbled upon this massive treasure, and because he was fortunate enough to find a treasure, he was able to bribe and buy his way all the way up the food chain. Okay, so the American way of politics is you get into government and then you get rich. Achashverosh's way of politics was he got massively wealthy and he made his way to the top. Okay, therefore the Megillah says, Achashverosh. It just calls him Achashverosh at first. It doesn't call him King Achashverosh. He was just, according to this opinion, he was just Achashverosh, the dude. Right? Later on, we'll see, he's going to be called King Achashverosh, but he really didn't grow up as a king, according to this opinion. And that's why it says that he ruled... From Hodu Kush, from India to Ethiopia, this is because of the incredible machinations, political machinations he was able to exert by being so incredibly wealthy. And part of the proof of that opinion is, normally, even in the uh, Tanakh, when describing a royal, it tells you his lineage. And according to this opinion, nowhere in the Megillah does it say the lineage of Achashverosh, and if Achashverosh was truly the son of a king, the grandson of a king, and so on and so forth, it should say that, but it doesn't mention that anywhere. So that's a support for the opinion that says that he was a commoner who bought his way into power. Now, there's another question. The entire purpose of the Megillah is to tell you the story of how Haman the great enemy of the Jews tried to destroy the Jews and how we ended up surviving. So why did it start off with the story of Achashverosh? It started off, off with the story of Haman. But the answer would be is that 
Hashem is describing, the Megillah is trying to tell you that when Hashem wants somebody, wants a story to take place, you could have a commoner who's a nobody and ends up ruling over the entire civilized world if it's what Hashem needs to put his miracle into place. You could have a regular person who grew up just a, a regular dude and he ends up becoming the king over the entire world if that's what Hashem wants. And I think it's also an important lesson for us today. You know, we look at the presidential races and we're like, oy vey, right? <laughs> There's no good options here. There's really no good options here, right? <laughs> and the answer is, Lev malachim v'sarim b'yad Hashem. If Hashem wants a man who can't complete a sentence to be the ruler of the largest country in the free world, Hashem will allow it. If Hashem wants a man who can think of nobody other than himself to be the ruler of the free world, Hashem will allow it. Whatever, like, Hashem controls the world. Like, if Hashem can make Ahasuerus, who is just a regular commoner, become the king of 127 kingdoms, because that's his plan, that's his plan, and we just say that's Hashem's plan. Okay. Now this also explains part of the miracle. According to this opinion that Ahasuerus did not start off his royalty, It actually makes the miracle that much greater. You know, I was listening to a podcast, a fascinating podcast, that was talking about the values of a monarchy. Now, we live in a world today where people just don't think there's any value to a monarchy, right? Ugh, monarchy, it's so old school, right? It's the backwards old world. What makes a king? You think he's better? Da-da-da, all that kind of jazz. Interestingly enough, there is an idea out there of political philosophy that says... But there's great adv- advan- advantage in having a monarchy. When you have a house, a family, that's been ruling a country for two, three hundred years, their perspective on how to rule is a lot more nuanced. In the American way, you have a person who comes into power, he's going to be in power for a very short period of time, and then he's gone. He's a little bit of a blip. So maybe he does whatever he can just to make himself great or to enrich his family. Suitcases of cash. He may have his child, for example, forced onto the boards of oil and natural gas companies that he knows nothing about it, where he's getting paid exorbitant salaries, right? There may be suitcases of cash being given. There may be advantageous deals being given to his children from the CCP and all kinds of crooked affairs all across the world. Maybe. Because you don't come from a family of wealth and you got to scrap around, make as much as you can because you're going to be off the stage shortly. Whereas if you're a king and you're a family that's been around for a long time, you move more carefully. The same way, I'll give you an example. When it comes to wealth, right? I've, I've actually, it's interesting, I've interacted with a lot of people throughout my lifetime who have been... Uh, very wealthy, sometimes generational and sometimes non-generational. And one thing that you see is that almost like the longer someone has their wealth, often the more deliberate and careful they are in how they make investments. They don't rush into things so fast. You know, they're very slow to get into investments because they they're not worried about wealth. They're worried about losing their wealth. Right? They're not worried about wealth. They're worried about losing their wealth. So for them, they're a lot more they're much more careful in how they make their financial decisions, whereas often if a person got into wealth very quickly, he may make some rash decisions, some rash investment choices, because he made his money so quickly, so he can often, often sometimes lose his money so quickly. So when you have a monarchy, they're a lot less likely to run into wars that they don't belong in, because we've got to, we've got to preserve our monarchy. We've got 200 years of the house of, you know, Strathmore, or whatever it's called. You know what I'm saying? We've got to keep the monarchy so we're less likely to be getting involved in foreign wars, wars all over the world. We're more likely to do what's going to keep things copacetic, whereas people who are just young and they get elected in, elected out, they're just so easily influenced by whatever is going on with the time. They don't have that sense of, like, history and tradition and the importance of history and the importance of tradition. How does this have anything to do with Ahasuerus? According to, many, according to what the Mamloes is saying over here, 
If Ahasuerus was truly a commoner who just came to power, it would explain why he was willing to let an entire people, some of the most successful people in his country, be cut down. If you were a person who comes into a long line of kings and there's someone trying to agitate to remove a nation that while maybe they don't get along well with others or whatever it is, but they're also some of the most brilliant minds in our kingdom, some of the most successful people, you're very, very circumspect before you take any rash moves by time saying, okay, we're going to annihilate an entire people. But because Ahasuerus came from nothing... He made rash decisions and he allowed for this, okay, we'll just kill people off. No big deal. You know, I got, I got in, in my time, I myself just got 127 people. So, okay, one more, one less. No big deal. Easy in, easy out. And that explains why we start off with the story of Ahasuerus according to the opinion that says that Ahasuerus did not begin his life as a king. Okay. Next. Again, the other opinion is that the 127 kingdoms was the entirety of the civilized world, which made the decree later to kill the Jews so much more hurtful and... Not hurtful. Hurtful. You hurt my feelings. Please don't make decrees. No, absolutely dangerous to our lives. Because if it wasn't the entire civilized world, we could always just move away. But according to the opinion that it was the entire civilized world, it, there, you can't just move away. Fascinatingly, there was a, a great rabbi who was recently asked at a huge conference. He said, what is the dilemma of our generation? And you know what he said? He said, the challenge that our generation is going is to face is the question of, is it time to leave yet? Right? Our nation has a long history, unfortunately, of staying too long in countries that didn't like us and then being very, very badly hurt by it. And the question, this great rabbi, people were expecting he was going to say the, uh, you know, the over, you know, the, all the social media or the, the reliance on so much conspicuous consumption. But he said that's going to be the challenge of our generation, to know when it's time to go. Who's the rabbi? Trying to remember, it was at the Torah Masorah Convention. I don't remember. I, I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the gedolim. It was one of the greatest of the generation. But that was, it was like a real shocker to the crowd to hear. And this was, of course, this happened after October 7th and all the hatred to the Jews were starting to come to the surface. But we slowly get ourselves back. We Jews are, it's like, sometimes, unfortunately, we're like the, uh, the, 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 the frog in the boiling water. You know, the, the temperature keeps rising. And at first, you know, it gets, rises a few degrees. We're like, oh, we start getting a little nervous. And then it stays a few degrees hotter. We just get more used to it. The hatred to the Jews on college campuses hasn't really calmed down. Just this week, the person who was appointed in Harvard to be in charge with combating anti-Semitism in Harvard resigned from her post saying, I'm not getting any support from the university and all the administrators they're all blocking everything I'm trying to do. They're trying to keep this anti-Semitism going. And she resigned in, 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 in open disappointment that, she, that she's getting no support for stopping anti-Semitism on campus. So it's not like the anti-Semitism stopped. We just get more accustomed to it. Like the frog that just stays in the boiling water. So this rabbi was saying that the question of our generation is, are we going to get out when it's time to get out? Okay, next, it's important to recognize... Some people will say, oh, what's the big miracle? The king's wife was Jewish. Mordechai had saved the king's life. No, no, no. You have to understand that Ahasuerus hated the Jewish people even more than Haman. Why? Haman had generational hatred to the Jewish people from being a member of the Amalekite family. For Ahasuerus, it was much more personal. You see, Ahasuerus had very talented astrologers. And they came to him and they said, King Ahasuerus, we are doing our nightly readings of the sky, and yet every, day, every night we go out there and we're seeing the same chapter. And this chapter says that you, Ahasuerus, are going to be succeeded on the throne by a Jew. What? No way. Impossible. We'll check tomorrow night. We'll come back and tell you. The next night, they're like, yeah, Ahasuerus, it says it right there in the stars. It says, Ahasuerus will be succeeded on the throne by a Jew. 
Now, of course, Achashverosh was succeeded on the throne by a Jew. What was that Jew's name? Darius II. Daryavesh II. The son of Esther, who was Jewish because his mother was Jewish. So indeed, there was a Jew who ruled after Achashverosh. But at that time, to Achashverosh, the thought that he would have a Jewish child was so insanely remote that he imagined, how would there ever be a Jew taking over my kingdom, taking over my throne? It must mean that the Jews are going to overthrow me. So he hated Jews because they were a threat to his personal safety. Now the problem was, he wanted to go on to all-out war against the Jews. But, the problem with that is he was afraid of the Jewish God. Like everybody, people were afraid of the Jewish God. So when Haman came to Achashverosh and said, Hey, Achashverosh, i got a really cool idea for you. Why don't we kill the Jews? Achashverosh was like, Yes! I've just been waiting for someone to come up with that amazing idea. So I could bl- it's not me, it's not me, it's not my, I, I didn't, you know, God of the Jews, I, I didn't do it, it was him. Right? The Talmud says an example. A guy has a big ditch in the middle of his field. Right? He's got a field, the whole field is flat, but in the middle of the, the, the field, he's got like a 10-foot crater, like a, just an empty ditch. And it, it, it's problematic whenever he tries to plow the field, he's missing out on all that land, and people could fall in, and it's dangerous. And one day his neighbor comes over to him and says, Hey, Yankel, can you do me a huge favor? I've got a ton of extra dirt. Do you have anywhere on your property that you could dump that dirt. He's like, yes, thank you so much. I'm so glad. I, actually, I do. I've got a big hole in my property and I needed dirt, but it was expensive to buy. Yes, amazing. So that's exactly what happens over here with Achashverosh. Okay. So Achashverosh makes his feast because he wanted the Jews to partake of the forbidden food and drink. And then he wanted God to get angry. So it was the first attempt before Haman came and said to him, hey, why don't I pay you to wipe out the Jews, Achashverosh's first attempt to get the Jews killed was to make this party in the hopes that the Jews would party at the celebration of the downfall of the Jewish God and then God would take them out. So his hope really was, later on Haman offered to take out the Jews, but Achashverosh was hoping to employ the Jewish God to take out the Jews. Okay, now interestingly... Achashverosh hated the Jews. And this is spoken about openly in the Gemara. Guess where it's not spoken about openly anywhere? In the Megillah. It doesn't say it anywhere in the Megillah that Achashverosh hated the Jews. If you read the Megillah, the simple reading of the Megillah is like, he was just a king and whatever, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't tell you about this. Why not? Uh, The main reason is that this Megillah is going to become part of the Persian royal records too. It's not good for business that the Persians be reading about how their king hated the Jews, right? So we want to leave it out of there, um, but there's enough hints to it that if you know how to read the Megillah, or for example, if you come to the Mamloy's class on the Megillah on Thursdays, or you listen to it later at Torah any time, I forgot to thank you all for coming. Did I, did, I, did I thank you all for coming? No, I didn't. Oh my gosh. Wow. Thank you, Hashem, that we came around to this. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to the amazing staff of Yeshua, but the other partners, Detroit, for sending out this incredible, beautiful lunch to learn. And thank you to the amazing folk at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, filled with close to 300,000 classes on every Jewish topic imaginable. Go on, check it out, and get back to me with your top 2,000 classes. Okay. So Achashverosh ends up killing his queen for refusing to obey his command, and of course... If people were going to say, oh, it's not a big miracle, of course Achashverosh saved the Jews. His wife was Jewish. Uh, I don't think he really cares so much about his wife. What happened to his first wife, right? She was chopped up in the first chapter. You know what I'm saying? So like, in case you think that it's not such a big miracle that Achashverosh saved the Jews because he had a Jewish wife, he didn't. He was not a man who so much respected women in general, his wife specifically. He was a little Henry VIII, you know what I'm saying? Like, when women in his life got uh, uncomfortable, he just took them out. So, th- that's why, another reason why the, Torah, the, the, the Megillah starts with the story of Vashti being killed and the, the big party. Interestingly enough, who was the main advisor to the king that would recommend to Achashverosh to kill Vashti? Haman. So the sages say that Achashverosh was a king 
who killed his wife because of a friend and killed his friend because of his wife. Alright, because he killed Haman because of his wife in the end. So there we go. That's an irony that is not meant to be, not, to, to be left unnoticed. Hashem's name is not found in the Megillah anywhere. Now you can find Hashem's Rashi Tevos, like for example, in the words, Yavo HaMelech V'Haman Hayom, that the king and Haman should come today for the final showdown. The words, Yavo HaMelech V'Haman Hayom, is Yud, the, the, the first letter in each word is Yud, Hey, and Vav, and Hey, which is God's name. Similarly, we find at the end, when Haman sees, like, I'm done, the, lo- the, the language in the Megillah there is Ki Kalsa Elav Hara'a Ki Yud. The last letter is Yud. Kalsa is Hey. Elav is Vav. Hara'a, the bad is Hey. Yud Ke Vavke, God's name, found at the end of the, those words. But God's name is not in the Megillah openly. Why? A number of reasons. The Jews have committed many sins leading up to this. They had bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. They had enjoyed themselves at Achashverosh's feast. If God had done an open miracle like the ones he had done at the splitting of the sea, the Jews would have thought, okay, we worked it out with God. But they actually didn't work it out with God. There was more work to be done. Yes, they rep- we're going to see that they prayed and repented for three days, but there was plenty more work to be done, and therefore Hashem said, I don't want to do an open miracle lest they think they've got all their work done already. They've completed their homework. They've got plenty more work to do. That's number one. Number two, when when the Megillah was written, Esther did not know if this book would make it into the Jewish canon. Right? What does the word canon mean? C-A-N-O-N. Not C-A-N-N-O-N. The word C-A-N-N-O-N is a cannon. You shoot a cannon. The word cannon in English, C-A-N-O-N, is a body of holy literature. The Jewish canon is known as the Chaf Dalet Sifrei Tanakh, the 24 books of holy scripture. There was a lot of debate and discussion about which books should make it in and which books should not. The general criteria is at the very least, to make it in. So there's the highest level is the five books of Moses, which are written by divine dictation of word for word. There's the books of the prophets, which are being written by the prophets, but do include prophecies that God gave to those prophets word for word. And then there's the books of the writings, the books like Psalms and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and Chronicles 1 and 2. Which one's your favorite? 1 or 2? Okay. Anyway, Chronicles and the book of Ruth and the book of Lamentations. Those books were written with divine inspiration. There were certain books that were debated hotly by the rabbis, should they be allowed in or should they not. The book of Koheles, the book of Ecclesiastes, was a hot debate. According to some opinions in the Talmud, the book of Song of Songs was, was a big debate. According to other opinions in the Talmud, chas v'shalom that it was a debate. Because it's Kodesh Kadashim, it's Holy of Holies. That's okay, but that's not for right now. Maybe we'll do the book of Song of Songs. But there was a big debate about whether Esther should make it in. Esther had to write to the rabbis saying, Kisvuni Ladoros, write me into the canon. I want to be part of the Jewish canon, this book of Esther. She didn't know if she was going to make it in. Mishle made it. That's right. Mishle did make it in Proverbs. Now, the, the, she didn't know if her book was going to make it in. Now, what would have happened if her book didn't make it in? It would have been a great story of valor that would become great, a bestseller in the Persian Empire, and she did not feel it was appropriate to put God's holy name in a book that would just be a, a storybook that people might throw away. Because if it doesn't make it into the canon, it's not a holy book. If it's not a holy book, you could throw it away, God forbid. So she did not want to put her name, the name of God in it in case it didn't make it into the Jewish canon and it was considered to be a storybook and people would not treat it with the respect it deserves for a, a book with God's name in it. So therefore, she did not write the name in it. Now interestingly, it's called the book of Esther. It's not called the book of Achashverosh. It's not called the book of Haman. It's not called the book of Mordechai. It's called the book of Esther. Why? Everybody else does what they're supposed to do. Achashverosh is a king. He made a feast. Okay, that's pretty kingly. Uh, Mordechai happened to catch the plot of Big Son and Seresh, and he reported it. Great, that's what you would do if you found someone trying to kill the king. Haman hated the Jewish people. Great, that's what Hamans do. They do it throughout all of time. The big shocker here, the one 
character that's entirely out of character is Esther. Esther is one of the seven prophetesses. Just to understand, Esther is one of the most saintly women to ever live. She's one of the seven prophetesses along with the great matriarchs. Along with Miriam, along with Devorah. That she would marry a grub, gruff, disgusting, non-Jewish king? That is absolutely out of character. And that's how you just recognize how this whole thing was so clearly orchestrated by God. So when you want to call the Megillah something, you're going to call it by the name of Esther, because that shows, that was the, the greatest shocker. That's like where the story doesn't, that's where the story, you know, it's like, it's like one of these, you know, it's like a movie that starts, everything's normal, and then suddenly, boom, the aliens show up. It's like, whoa, that took a turn I wasn't expecting. When Esther goes and marries Ahasuerus, everything is just totally out of character. And of course, she has another name. Her, other, her, her name is Hadassah. The word Esther, which we'll learn about later, the word Esther comes from the same word as Hester, which means hidden, because it's an entire Megillah about all the hidden machinations of God to bring about salvation for His people. It was in those days, Kesheves, like when the king was sitting. The word ke means like in Hebrew. It, it should have said Bisheves, in the sitting of the king, and his throne of glory in the Shushan Abira, in the Shushan the capital. So let's see what it means again. In those days, when the king was sitting on his throne of glory, his royal throne in Shushan the capital. Ahasuerus makes a party in the third year of his reign. We'll see that there was a number of reasons for it, but one of the biggest reasons was that it was another miscalculation on when the 70 years that was the Jewish people were promised, as we spoke about last week, that they would get redeemed. It was another miscalculation on when the 70 years had passed. Ahasuerus was so concerned about the Jewish king taking it out on him, because he knew the clock is ticking. Imagine if you're living as a king, but you know that the Jewish prophecies have been saying for years, in 70 years, you guys are going to go back, and you think that 70 years are about to end on your watch. Achashverosh was so afraid that for the first three years of his reign, he would not allow people to call him king. Now I'm just, I'm just here. He wouldn't sit on a royal throne, and he wouldn't wear a royal crown. Because this way, if, if, if the king who was oppressing the Jews had to go, uh, I don't know where that king is. Oh, me? No, I'm not King Ahasuerus. I'm just Ahasuerus. The first verse in the Megillah calls him by Hebe Ahasuerus. Who Ahasuerus? It's only after three years that suddenly he goes by Keshevus HaMelech Ahasuerus. Only then is he be willing to call. After three years passed and he was convinced that the 70-year timeline had expired and all was safe. It was like the all clear goes. And as soon as the all clear goes, ladies and gentlemen, please meet your king, King Ahasuerus. And he goes to sit down on his royal throne. Now, and by the way, not only is there that 70 year uh, prophecy, there's also all of the astro- astrologers coming in every day and saying, yeah. We checked the skies again last night, King. You're going to be replaced by a Jew. So, like, there's so many reasons that Achashverosh is insecure, right? He's got, he's got insecurity problems, don't we all, right? Anyway, in the third year of his kingdom, he finally says, we're clear, okay? So, but of course, he made a miscalculation of the 70 years. And, of course, the Jews would be able to go back and build a temple under the command of his son, Darius II, the Jewish king who would take over for him and allow the Jews to go back after 70 years. Now, the king, when it, even when he would sit on the throne for the first couple of years, when he would sit down, it wasn't like he was sitting as a ruler. It was Kishavas, like he's sitting. Kishavas means like he was sitting. Okay. Now, tell, let's talk about this throne for a moment. There was a great throne built for King Solomon. It was made a beautiful throne with all kinds of golden animals and all kinds of incredible, fascinating, whirring machinery. And the way it would work is when the king would approach, the animals would start unfurling their arms and their paws to carry the king up the steps to put him on the throne. It was this incredible, gorgeous throne. 
when Nebuchadnezzar had this conquered Jerusalem, he had the throne brought back to Babylon. When he tried to sit down on the throne, one of the animals malfunctioned and smashed him and broke his leg. So Nebuchadnezzar learned that there's only the only king who could sit on this throne was a king who ruled over the entire world. Interestingly, according to one opinion, according to the opinion that Ahasuerus originally had 254 kingdoms, and then because he stopped the temple building, he lost half his kingdoms. At first, he actually was able to sit down on this throne, and only later he couldn't, so he had to make a new throne for himself, his throne in Shushan. Okay, that's according to one opinion. According to the other opinion, Shlomo Melch's miraculous throne never allowed anybody to sit on it, and that's why we say in the prayers... And Shabbos morning, after this, the Haftorah, as we read, we, we pray for the, recept, the bringing back of the Davidic throne, and we say, Al Kiso Lo Yeshev Zar. On his seat, no stranger can sit, and that's an indication that on the miraculous throne of the house of David, no stranger could sit. Now, why was the capital in Shushan? He had taken over a great kingdom. Their capital was this great city of Bavel. Bavel was both a country and a city, like Panama and Panama City. And they had a massive, beautiful capital for many, many decades. Hashem put it into his mind to say, I'm a new king, I'll do things my way. I'm going to build a new city, I'm going to call it Shushan, from the word Shoshana, from the word rose. That was going to be very precious to him. And I'm going to make my capital there. Now, why did Hashem put it into Ahasuerus' head to make a new capital in the city of Shushan? Because there was an inhabitant in Shushan who was supposed to play an important role. His name was Mordechai. He had a, a, a niece of his living with him. Her name was Esther. If the mountain don't come to Muhammad, Muhammad has to go to the mountain. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm saying. But if... Mordechai and Esther were not coming to the king. Hashem made it that the king has a little juke in his head, a little bug in his head. It says, I don't want to be in the same capital of my predecessors. I'm the new boss in town. I'm going to move. I'm going to make a beautiful capital right there in that city. I'm going to call it Shushan, my beautiful rose. Of course, that is exactly where Mordechai and Esther are already living, and they will play a major role in the Megillah which we'll learn about a little bit more, God willing, next week. In two weeks, we've now covered two verses of the Megillah. I'm afraid we're going too fast. Excuse me, sir, do you know how fast you were going? Yes, approximately one verse a week. I'm going to have to write you up a ticket. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.